Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host in Russian and Eurasian Studies, Philip Balgach. Joining me today is Willard Sunderland to talk about his newest book, The Baron's Cloak, A History of the Russian Empire in War and Revolution. Dr. Sunderland is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Cincinnati. He is the author of Taming the Wild Field, Colonization and Empire on the Russian Steppe, and the co-editor of a book called Peopling the Russian Periphery, Borderland Colonization in Eurasian History. The Baron's Cloak is a history of the late Russian Empire. While the book is presented as a biography of Baron von Ungern, it is actually an in-depth look at the Russian Empire, with Baron von Ungern playing a central role in guiding us from the west to the east. By following von Ungern's life, we are able to follow the expansion of the Russian Empire towards Asia. Baron's Cloak is a story of the interaction between the Russian Empire and the people on the borderlands. It is also a history of cosmopolitan Russia. The Baron's life, who was a Tsarist military officer, is an interesting insight into the multinational society that the Russian Empire was. And here to talk about the book Baron's Cloak is Dr. Willard Sunderland. Willard, hello and welcome to the program. Hi there. Before we jump into the book, uh, we'd love to hear you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to Russian history. Well, uh, uh, first of all, thanks very much for uh, having me on the show. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to have the chance to talk a little bit about my, my work. I think um, my story, uh, uh, as far as coming to Russian history is concerned, is pretty typical for people of my generation in the U.S. Uh, I uh, grew up as a, as a boy uh, always knowing or hearing about the Soviet Union, and um, as it became uh, a little bit more thoughtful about things as a teenager, uh, it seemed like the Soviet Union was everywhere. This was uh, the uh, very late 1970s and early 1980s. And by the time I started college in 1983, I was uh, just very curious about this country that we heard about all the time, uh, but that, um, and, and that it was obviously uh, uh, our, our enemy in a very basic sense, and, uh, and yet a place that I, I barely understood. And so when I got to college, I got excited about um, studying Russian. I, I uh, learned that if I kept things up um, in my Russian program, I might have a chance to actually participate in a student exchange in the Soviet Union. And my college years turned into the Perestroika years, um, of tremendous, uh, uh, really exciting change in the Soviet Union that also opened up incredible opportunities for me because um, I was an okay student, but I, I certainly wasn't at the top of the heap. But I was saved by a warming in U.S.-Soviet relations because they expanded the number of U.S. students that could go on these exchanges. I barely qualified, and by um, 1987, I was on a semester-long exchange program in Moscow. And it was really um, after that experience that I realized I, I couldn't really uh, turn away from the place. It was so absorbing. There were so many questions. There was so much that was different about it, and yet eerily similar in some ways, too, that um, I came away wanting to understand the country and the culture uh, on a deeper level, and it just seemed like there was nowhere to go but, but, but history, because one way or the other, it was the historical context uh, that uh, um, provided at least some kind of explanation for what seemed to be the tremendous uh, curiosity, uh, um, complexity of, of what I was seeing when I was a student there. So uh, uh, after that, I, I, uh, I got excited and thinking about just about any way to stay in touch with, uh, with the Soviet Union. For a period, I worked on these fishing ships in the North Pacific uh, during a time of um, joint venture operations between the Soviet government and uh, an American company that was uh, bringing Soviet fishermen over to American waters to work with American fishermen. They needed uh, uh, Americans uh, who knew a little bit of Russian and were foolish enough to sign up for months at sea on a Soviet trawler. And I did that. It really improved my Russian. And it also gave me another uh, uh, look at the complexities of Soviet life uh, in that time. And then after that, I I followed things a little bit further and worked for ACTR, which is a major exchange organization in D.C., and uh, from there, I ended up in graduate school at Indiana. So that's the, the short story. 
of um, how I got there. I think more than anything, um, I ended up pursuing Russian history because of the fascination produced by the hostility of the Cold War, the hostility and the mystery of the Cold War that made me really think about the place. Your interests originally seemed to be have been in the Cold War, but you came to write this book about Russian Empire. This is your newest book, Baron's Cloak, is very much a story of the breadth of the Russian Empire. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how you, it is that you came to write uh, this book and how it is that you came to choose your your hero of the book. Uh, his name is Baron von Ergen, uh, and I'm wondering if you could just talk about uh, both uh, the hero and how it is that he wraps into the context of what is empire? What is the Russian empire? Sure. Well, you know, it's so interesting, even though it was the broader context of the Cold War that got me excited about learning more about Russia, as I uh, got into formally studying the place and then um, uh, followed through on my initial experiences living and working there, uh, what really fascinated me was uh, the, the breadth and diversity of the country. Obviously, the Soviet Union was, uh, um, at the time, uh, by far the largest uh, country in the world. And looking back through history, the Russian Empire, too, uh, uh, was uh, an enormous state, second only to the British Empire at the height of its um, um, uh, grandeur in the uh, late 19th century. And I had always wondered about um, uh, how such an enormous space could come uh, to be, as to say, how, how the different regions could fit together, what histories put them in the same uh, historical trajectory, um, um, what uh, connections uh, were forged between the different peoples and cultures of the area. So uh, even even when I was an undergraduate student, sort of stumbling around for uh, uh, for um, uh, just about anything that um, uh, uh, could connect me to Russia, it was always more than anything um, uh, a fascination with the size and diversity of the place. So as I went into graduate school, those became uh, you know dominant. Um, uh, guides for me in my research. And my first book, uh, which came out of my dissertation, was focused on uh, problems of empire building. I, I, I studied uh, the history of, of Russian colonization and settlement in a, in a huge and very important region in the history of the Russian Empire, the, the, the steppes of the, of, the, of the Russian South, north of the Black and uh, Caspian Seas, over centuries. It's a massive process that uh, has an awful lot in common with processes of colonization in other places. And I took on the story across centuries, um, uh, uh, painting a pretty, a pretty big tableau of all the different mechanisms that came together, both on the ground and in boardrooms way back in the capital, to create this imperial region through settlement. But as I was uh, sort of following that history, what I realized uh, was that I wasn't really answering this other question that began nagging at me, which is how the whole thing worked uh, at the individual level for, for concrete people. Um, uh, I, I, I obviously had people in my story and some of the personalities I came across in writing that book were truly remarkable, but I didn't pause much to unpack them or think too deeply about how they would have looked at the empire they were, they were participating in, or in some cases directly putting together. So as I thought about what I would do next, I, I wanted to try and get into that question. And in a very basic sense, um, after uh, publishing that first book, which is called uh, Taming the Wild Field, in the early 2000s, I, I began just sort of strolling through um, uh, new readings that um, led me uh, into um, uh, imperial persons, imperial personalities. I didn't necessarily have any one particular person in mind, uh, but then I did, um, uh, I guess, to my uh, good fortune as an academic, because it raises so many questions, to my good fortune, I did stumble into Baron Ungen. <laughs> uh, and the reason why I, I say it's good fortune is because he really is uh, uh, an imperial uh, person who opens up so many um, intriguing questions uh, about the empire, both in a very general sense, but also specifically in his time. His story um, gave me the chance to work on something that was really not at all a part of my first book. If the first book that I wrote was focused overwhelmingly on what brought the empire together, Ungern's story was not just about how the empire worked as a whole, but also why, in fact, in this particular historical moment, the moment of his life, why the empire um, began to shape tremendously and ultimately uh, spun into pieces before being reconstituted in a very different way, um, eerily continuous in some respects, but ultimately a different way by the Bolsheviks. So his story was both about the empire coming together and falling apart, 
and it was about big processes, but also a single person. And so it um, it, in, it intrigued me from from the start. Union is born in modern day Austria, and your book encompasses. Uh, Russia's connection to Europe and to uh, the Far East, to China, to Mongolia, to Siberia. Um, so let's start with, with Europe and how it is that Union comes to be born in uh, in Austria, but becomes a officer for for the for the Russian Tsar, and it will go from there into the empire expanding eastward. Right. Yeah, well, Ungern uh, was uh, uh, hardly representative. There is no single person who can speak for all the complexities of the empire, and I, I try to make that clear in the book. Um, but one of my goals in choosing Ungern is to get inside the uh, basic uh, um, um, material components of imperial living, of making a life within the empire. And when you do that, you run into all kinds of people who, like Ungern, bring together a variety of cultures and habits of mobility, a familiarity with living in different regions and somehow combining them into some sort of broader way of operating within um, uh, imperial space. And Ungern belonged to an extremely um, uh, privileged uh, 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 layer of the empire's population. He was a Baltic German nobleman uh, who, um, uh, whose family had a storied history uh, within um, uh, the, the, the broader uh, history of uh, European nobilities and a very influential history within the Russian noble establishment going back to the very beginning of Russian power in the Baltic in the early 18th century. So he's definitely a, a, a special guy. And like so many uh, uh, noblemen of his generation, he was, um, in a sense, uh, cosmopolitan from the start. You know, even before he got into his diapers, when he was just a, an idea in his parents' uh, uh, minds, he was already uh, uh, all but fated to be uh, a, a person who would live between the cultures. His father was a Baltic German nobleman. Um, uh, uh, brought up and uh, and and schooled um, uh, within the ways of the Russian Empire. His mother was a a, a German noblewoman um, who had uh, deep family connections to uh, um, Austria, and that explains why, at the time of his birth, the family was living in the small town of Graz, which is in the region region of uh, of Styria in uh, in southern Austria. Uh, but right from the start, in effect, he was like so many uh, uh, noblemen of his generation and, and, uh, and um, uh, uh, I, I guess I'd say ethnically German noblemen in particular, uh, a man or a person sort of di- uh, uh, mixed up a variety of worlds. In this case, the Habsburg Empire, the world of the, of the, of the nascent uh, German Empire and of Russia uh, as well. The Tsar will take many of his generals from outside of mainland Russia. What does that say about Russian relationships and the um, imperial Russian relationships with uh, with Europe uh, more generally? Uh, and why is it the majority of generals are coming from nobility from Europe uh, as opposed to nobility from, say, uh, in the Far East, if, that's, if that is accurate? Mm-hmm. Well, no, the Russian uh, uh, officer class was fundamentally cosmopolitan, multinational. Uh, the Russian Empire was uh, um, a cosmopolitan operation at its highest level. Uh, one of the great uh, elements of uh, Russian success over the years um, in terms of empire building, of expanding both the territory and the broader influence of the empire, was the willingness of, of the Russian establishment to um, uh, open itself to the elites of new regions, regions where the empire was seeking to go. In fact, it found in those elites very willing partners, largely because the terms of the Russian empire presented were uh, broadly favorable. That is to say, uh, the Russian empire um, uh, was certainly never a single thing. It changed uh, in in different ways over the centuries. But um, the arrangements made within elite politics were eerily consistent across uh, the broad imperial period. Um, uh, uh, in a nutshell, the empire would show up uh, and uh, come to terms with the people in charge. It could show up in a variety of ways, uh, through war, uh, through uh, uh, diplomatic parlays leading to 
uh, effective annexation uh, through uh, marital alliances that would bring in new territories. But one way or another, once the empire showed up, uh, deals were made with elites on the ground, bringing them into the broader structures of the Russian nobility, uh, um, uh, allowing them to maintain, uh, 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 in many cases, uh, uh, all of their wealth and privileges, but just reorienting their allegiance away from uh, whoever was in charge prior to the Russian arrival and now uh, towards the Russian Tsar. And that's very much what happened with the uh, uh, nobilities of uh, Russia's U European uh, fringe. And the Baltic German uh, uh, nobles were among the most uh, uh, successful and ultimately the most favored in the Russian imperial establishment. They... Um, even though it was, it was never uh, the majority of Russian nobles, excuse me, never the majority of Baltic German nobles who actually picked paths of serving in the Russian government, either in the army or in the civilian administration, uh, those Baltic German nobles who did became, in many cases, extremely uh, influential, extremely visible. The Ungern Sternbergs were a storied family in the um, uh, broader Baltic German nobility. They're one of the foundational families, and uh, they had tremendous pedigree within uh, the Russian system. So many of Ungern Sternberg's relatives um, on his father's side and on his um, stepfather's side, because uh, at an early point in his childhood, his parents divorced, his mother remarried, she married another baron uh, who also came from a fairly storied family. Between those two families uh, together, we find scores of, of, um, of men um, are trained in the most elite uh, schools of the empire and going on to um, um, uh, impressive uh, ranks in Russian service, whether in the military or otherwise. So Ungern, in many respects, is a symbol of the, the creative adaptability of the Russian Empire as it expanded into new regions, the terms on which it would make its accords for power with local elites. And Ungern shows just how uh, mutually beneficial these arrangements could be, because ultimately, obviously, by the end of his life, he's willing to put everything into maintaining the empire, the empire that in some very basic sense ruled over him, but which he came to serve so completely that he identified with it as uh, uh, the only acceptable way of life for um, Eurasians. When Ungern comes to St. Petersburg at a ripe age of 17, uh, he comes to enroll in the, in the uh, military academy. Uh, and by 1905, uh, during the first, uh, uh, I guess, failed Russian Revolution, um, he's, already, he's already in the, in the military academy. Uh, soon thereafter, he'll find himself in, uh, in, eastern, in eastern Russia towards China. Uh, so I was wondering if you could explain to me exactly what, what are the ambitions of the Russian Empire moving eastward? And it seems to me that it's only with the advent of the railroad and railroad uh, vehicles that this movement is possible because of the terrain, because of the dense forests in Russia, uh, and because of the, the enormous size of it. Uh, so what is, how, does, how is it that he comes from Austria to St. Petersburg and ends up very shortly thereafter in uh, going towards China, and what are the ambitions there? Why is he? Why exactly is he traveling? Right. Well, that's a great question, and uh, and in a very basic sense, it's um, it's uh, central to the w way I approach his story because the reason that I seized upon Ungern as a protagonist, as someone who could lead me into the history of the empire, is precisely because he combines um, uh, both extremities, uh, the West and the East, and as he takes us into, um, uh, on the one hand, fraught borderlands of the Baltic, Poland, Central Europe, um, and on the other, um, uh, East Asia in particular, the broader uh, Russian Far East and Mongolia, uh, you come to see the, um, uh, the continuities of the problems facing um, Russian imperial managers uh, and uh, the continuities of problems on the ground for all kinds of uh, much more ordinary people living around borders and caught up within the great political movements that were sort of changing those borders. Rungen, um, as I was saying earlier, he belonged to a special a community of people, uh, uh, people who were, uh, in, a, in a very basic sense, um, predisposed to mobility. Uh, uh, and uh, by his time, in part, indeed, because of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, uh, could imagine a much easier latitude of movement within the empire, one that would uh, bring these two ends of the country, separated by over 5,000 miles of distance, and like you said, in some cases, pretty hard terrain, would bring those ends much, much, much uh, closer together, both psychologically and practically. 
terms of moving people, goods, and the rest. Um, so uh, uh, his moment is, is in many respects, let's say, the moment of his life, um, um, a period of a, of, a, of a great Asian turn. I think I, I use uh, that, um, that reference in my book. Uh, uh, there's a sort of preoccupation with questions about a Russian power in Asia, uh, um, uh, 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 an openness in um, uh, uh, certain limited terms, anyway, to uh, understanding East Asian cultures, to engaging with them, uh, to making sense of Russia as, uh, as an Asian power, as an Asian culture. Ungern, I believe, like, like many young people of his generation, was um, um, in some very profound way sort of touched by this stirring. Uh, and he followed... Um, his ambitions in regards to Asia through the structures that were uh, most obvious to him, uh, most logical given his upbringing and formation. And that uh, those really are the structures of the uh, Tsarist army. So he, he or the Tsarist military more generally, because when he first ends up in St. Petersburg as a, as a young boy, having proved himself to be a pretty miserable student um, in, uh, in the... Um, uh, in, in a, in a uh, Russian uh, gymnasium in Reval, which was uh, the head city of the old uh, Russian province of Estland, which uh, becomes, in fact, the basis for uh, what emerges uh, slightly later as the modern state of Estonia. Uh, after being effectively kicked out there, his parents decide to try and uh, whip him into shape by sending him to military school in St. Petersburg. And the first uh, military school he stops in is actually the naval uh, uh, school of naval cadets, which is a very storied history in the Russian Empire going back to the time of Peter the Great. Uh, 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 proves himself to be a pretty miserable student there too, but in a sense he's sort of saved by the great events of the day because the uh, 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 the great disturbance of 1905 sort of unfolds uh, uh, or begins to unfold outside his windows uh, um, uh, there in his elite academy in St. Petersburg. Uh, uh, he uh, finds himself, again, effectively thrown out of school for being a pretty miserable student, but he takes advantage of the fact that the Russian Empire uh, soon finds itself um, uh, not just in the chaos of revolution, but uh, uh, but embroiled in war with Japan to uh, enlist as a volunteer. And as best I can tell from looking at uh, the uh, trajectories of his life, um, um, it's in 1905 as a humble private volunteer that he first ends up uh, on the far eastern borders of the Russian Empire. He serves uh, for a period in the Russian Imperial Army in Manchuria. He gets to the front of the Russian war with Japan uh, after uh, peace talks have begun. Uh, in fact, he arrives just in time for an awful lot of mud and boredom. There's no fighting. Uh, but it's clear that that uh, uh, period was a very uh, impressive um, uh, occasion for him, even though we have no writing to speak to any of this change. Uh, it just seems that it couldn't help but have affected him because of all that comes next. In effect, as the war winds down, and his uh, um, uh, division is ultimately um, uh, repatriated, uh, sent back to European Russia. He returns to school in St. Petersburg. Same kind of elite academy, except now he's switched from the Navy to the Army. And even though he hardly becomes uh, uh, the valedictorian, he really straightens up. <laughs> his grades improve, uh, and uh, most strikingly, his... Um, conduct at school improves because his earlier conduct books were full of all kinds of transgressions which got him into perennial trouble. But now, uh, after having come back from the Far East and presumably grown up a little bit and focused himself on a new goal, uh, he is uh, uh, absolutely perfect in terms of his behavior. And he achieves what must have seemed to his parents a few, er a few years earlier as the almost impossible goal of actually graduating from, uh, from uh, um, uh, his military academy. And he becomes... Uh, a, a young officer in the Russian army, and he chooses, and here's final proof, I think, uh, even though we don't, again, have anything written down, but final proof that um, his experiences in the Far East profoundly changed him. He chooses uh, for his first assignment um, a position with the Trans-Baikal Cossack Post, which is a, 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 a special force of, in effect, uh, frontier soldiers, um, in this case, serving on the border between the Russian Empire and the Empire of China on the edges of uh, what the Chinese refer to as Outer Mongolia. So he purposefully choose, chose to return towards places that he knew out east 
And even though we don't know what stirrings took place within him, I'm positing from sort of following his movements and connecting these changes that uh, something profound took place. Um, um, not just that broader uh, emerging uh, fascination with East Asia that we know was alive in Russian society and certainly in the Russian power establishment, uh, but also his concrete experiences that must have turned his head and focused him on pursuing a career out there as a young man, as a young officer. The Russian Empire is so big and St. Petersburg comparatively is so small that in the growth of the Russian Empire, they had to have interacted with all sorts of people living in uh, in what is mainland Russia. Uh, and a huge group of this is the Cossacks themselves, the ones that Union will soon join. What effect do they have on Union, and what effect do they have on the Russian Empire? How does the Russian Empire want to fit? Because they know they can't, they can't push them aside because they're they're so powerful, such a powerful force in the country. So how do they adapt the Cossacks to uh, to work for or to function within the larger Russian Empire that would be loyal, perhaps to? Uh, to the Tsar. So how does this interaction take place? And if you could talk maybe more about um, or, or in his experience with the Cossacks. Sure. I mean, one of the uh, one of the most interesting aspects of Ungen's story for me was the opportunity to um, uh, uh, explore um, the uh, sort of content of Cossack history, not in those regions where we know Cossacks best, which is, uh, uh, ironically, uh, the region that I studied more, much more closely in my, in my first study uh, on the Russian steppe, that is the Cossacks of the Don, the Cossacks of uh, uh, the, the, the Lower Volga and Ural rivers, the Cossacks of the North Caucasus, uh, the Cossacks of old Ukraine, uh, but uh, different Cossacks altogether, the Cossacks uh, that were ultimately um, 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 established for service on the borders of the Russian Empire in uh, Siberia and what becomes later the Russian Far East. And in fact, there are very different uh, Cossack histories for all the continuities uh, in, a, in, a, in a broader Cossack tradition. There's some really important differences between the original hosts in European Russia. And host is a term um, uh, that... Um, 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 uh, is used in reference to Cossacks to, defy, uh, to uh, describe uh, 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 broader Cossack community, uh, both as a military organization and as an administrative unit. Well, the old hosts uh, of Europe, of, of the European side of Russia, uh, 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 they came together somewhat organically. You know, Cossacks, uh, uh, as best we can tell, uh, were a, a, a motley collection of, of very ordinary folks uh, runaways, wanderers, uh, in, uh, 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 Slavs, but also Turks or Turkic nomads who create, um, in effect, independent communities uh, just beyond the reach of the states around them, beyond the reaches of Muscovy, beyond the reaches of Poland and the Ottomans. And ultimately, as the centuries progress, they find themselves sort of pinched between these states, serving different ones at different times. Um, um, and ultimately, when the Russian Empire wins the great game for the European steppe, um, fought out with its rivals, they begin to transform the Cossacks uh, from unruly, uh, independent um, frontier contractors into servitors of the Tsar. Well, if we move from the European side of the empire to the Asian side, what you find is a history of Cossackdom that's much more shaped by this uh, ethic of service and by the empire taking advantage of Cossack communities to serve on the borders of, um, of the Russian East. The Cossacks that uh, Ungern joins, um, they are much like the Cossacks of the other side of the empire, uh, made up of all kinds of ordinary people who are mixing along a border. There's no, dis there's no uh, special preoccupation with making sure that everybody is ethnically Russian or even, for that matter, uh, Russian Orthodox. Uh, the Cossacks are, are, are fundamentally cosmopolitan and, and multi-ethnic, uh, multi-confessional. That's the point I'm going to, uh, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. Uh, but in, in um, the case of the Cossack orders of the, the hosts of, the, uh, of Siberia and the East, these are, these are uh, Cossack groups that are, in effect, put together by the Russian state. Uh, they're organized by the state to serve the purposes of the state on its distant borders. Uh, and basically, a very uh, simple deal is struck. Uh, Cossacks are given land, told that they can take advantage of that land for their, their own households. Uh, but at the same time, every adult male in the Cossack household between a certain range of years has to provide a horse and has to provide himself 
for uh, uh, service on the frontier. In effect, the state helps to create a class of sort of farmer warriors, <laughs> farmer soldiers. And by the very late 19th century, uh, uh, um, these uh, 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 Cossack hosts are all but formalized as uh, units of the, the Russian Empire. They have their own special traditions. They have their own uh, reasonable separateness from the rest of the army. But in many respects, they're treated like um, 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 army uh, uh, divisions. And uh, uh, when Ungern uh, arrives uh, for his first uh, stint as a Cossack officer in 1908, um, he is following in the footsteps of many other um, um, uh officers of his generation dispatched from the capitals to serve in uh, these distant areas. And what's curious for me, given Ungern's background, is that he also reminds us of the variety of cosmopolitan communities that existed within the empire, and that in all kinds of instances, like the instance of his life, actually found themselves in a curious uh, cohabitation. Because Ungern belonged to the world of a cosmopolitan nobility. In particular, the cosmopolitan nobility of the uh, uh, Russian Baltic Germans, but in a more uh, in a broader sense, it's of the imperial nobility. By uh, um, uh, traveling east as a young officer and joining a Cossack host, in this case the Transbaikal Cossack host, he also signed up for cosmopolitan service. He joined another incredibly ethnically diverse uh, um, um, uh, social community, the Transbaikal Cossacks. Uh, were overwhelmingly Russian Orthodox, but they had a large minority of Tungus and Buryat uh, uh, members who were, uh, in terms of their religious practice, uh, uh, Buddhist or, or, or animist uh, or uh, shamanist in their, in their um, uh, uh, persuasions. Um, uh, everybody spoke at least some Russian, but Buryats and Tungus spoke their own languages, and the Russian Cossacks working with them, um, uh, in many cases, worked freely in those languages as well. Uh, they shared uh, habits of, 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 um, of uh, their household economies. They shared uh, habits of dress. Uh, they intermarried. Uh, Ungern reminds us of how um, a variety of mixings of cosmopolitanism, I guess I'd say, uh, uh, some of them quite high-born and others very ordinary, very run-of-the-mill, could mix together. And it's somewhere in that mixing that we can find some of the special glue of the empire. It's not, it's not, it's not the only thing that explains the way the empire works, but there's something in that mixing that gives us a clue as to what held it together. We find out later in the book that, uh, that von Ungen struggles with religion at one at a later point in his life. He, he goes back and forth between Buddhism and orthodoxy uh, and back and forth and back and forth. Is this, is this a result of him having spent so much time with the Cossacks, which were very cosmopolitan, and even though his original upbringing was within the noble cosmopolitanism, it's still very much similar. While maybe ethnically and nationally different, this new cosmopolitan group that he's with, the Cossacks, are come from different social structures. Um, they're racially different. They have different languages, and it's very much more diverse group that he's used to. So, does does this affect his 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 personal uh, convictions? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, obviously, as a as a nobleman, he was exposed to a a, a, a particular sort of cosmopolitan environment. You know, uh, uh, a group, uh, you know, various subcultures of people who spoke a variety of languages, who traveled broadly, uh, who thought of themselves as worldly people. Uh, uh, in uh, finding himself among uh, the Cossacks of first the Baikal and later uh, the Russian Far East, um, he. Indeed, as I said earlier, found himself in another cosmopolitan community. But, you know, the cosmopolitanism there is very, very different, obviously. And uh, we should be probably a little more careful about using the word. I mean, I certainly don't mean that uh, uh, the Cossacks that he was uh, um, um, serving with on, on these, these, these uh, pretty remote frontiers um, uh, thought of themselves in relation to the world with the same sort of cosmopolitan ethos that Ungern would have run into in the uh, very, very privileged schools and the parlors of his youth. But what he did find was a culture of, uh, you know, a Cossack culture 
a broader border culture of incredible mixing and transit and interaction between different groups and different religions. And uh, my sense, again, without having uh, Ungern's own writings to guide us uh, through his thoughts, um, my sense is that um, what he ultimately brought to this particular frontier for himself was a fascination with Asia, um, a, a, a quest to make sense of Asia as um, a, a, a special sort of terrain for um, the future of the empire and I think by the end of his life uh, for the future of the world entire. And it was out of that curiosity, which I think this curiosity for Asia that I believe was sort of built into his age and that he must have imbued in, in different ways um, um, and then uh, found himself sort of confronted with as a young man because he was serving in these places. It's, it's that combination of both uh, 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 curiosity of his broader cultural formation and then the opportunity of his service that uh, uh, I think created a path into a certain amount of religious experimentation. Um, of borrowing between cultures, of seeking to learn and use Mongolian, uh, uh, and as far as I can tell as well, uh, a little bit of, of Chinese, of, uh, of consulting shamans, of uh, praying at Buddhist temples, while at the same time um, never formally renouncing his upbringing as a Lutheran, while at the same time, too, apparently, even though I haven't found the smoking gun documentation that uh, most historians would probably want, but apparently uh, uh, agreeing to a Orthodox marriage with a Manchu woman in Harbin in um, uh, the, the years of the Russian Civil War. So he, he is an incredibly complex figure in terms of his personal religious politics. Uh, uh, but I, I guess what's useful for him, for me, is uh, and, and for anybody interested in the empire, is that I think he's revealing of a of a, of a wide range of of uh, choices made by all kinds of people. Many people were much uh, lower born than him, who operated within these frontier or border environments and had the opportunity to to sort of combine uh, religions, borrow between languages and, and broader uh, material and popular cultures, and they became, as a result, fundamentally. Border people, I guess I'd say, multicultural people. Burton goes to great lengths to learn about Asia, about the people he's interacting with. And the following question maybe perhaps come off of this a little bit ahistorical, but what, what does what does Russia do wrong, the Russian Empire do wrong, which Ergen perhaps did right in learning about Asia and then being able to cohabitate with Asia? What, in, in another sense of the word, could Russia have learned from his efforts to... Um, to assimilate in, into Asian culture and, and to assimilate, bring Russian and European cultures together with Asian cultures. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's too sweeping, obviously, to, to suggest that the empire got um, a whole, a whole uh, sort of course of imperial politics completely wrong. Um, but I, I think you're on to something in, a, in, a, in one respect. Uh, I, uh, the arc of the Russian empire followed from um, the um, 18th century into the 19th, and then the very early 20th century, on the on the verge of what um, uh, uh, becomes the last catastrophic uh, um, shaking of the empire, and ultimately the demise of the royal house and the revolutions of 1917. You know that arc shows you a move from from a certain amount of success and confidence uh, to uh, repeated failures, or certainly. <laughs> uh, a difficulty with uh, almost endless challenges of uh, what you could call in sort of business speak multi-ethnic management. You know, uh, uh, broadly speaking, you you could conclude that the first uh, Russian imperial managers um, were better at the job than the last ones. But of course, uh, uh, going into that uh, critical period of Ungard's life, the last few decades of the empire, and thinking about the way the empire was managed and getting down to seeing what was going wrong, you also find an awful lot that was going right or that was going much as it had always gone. And Ungern, in many respects, is is hardly making up uh, a solution for um, um, uh, the empire's future. He's actually living, in many respects, the empire's past. I mean, 
the, the, the Russian Empire survived and in some respects thrived for generations by creating um, uh, all kinds of open space for a certain kind of practical toleration, practical mixing of peoples. Uh, uh, and um, 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 uh, obviously within that space, there were some very, very clear deals made, as I suggested earlier, with regional elites. And um, uh, there were very clear limits placed by imperial authorities to um, the degree of toleration that was permitted uh, and uh, the degree of autonomy uh, allowed to the regions. Ungern, uh, by empire's end, finds himself in a system that in some ways is, is just as permissive as before. <laughs> With, with this sort of, uh, I guess I'd say, bracketed permissiveness that defined the empire, uh, the laissez-faire imperialism that I talk about uh, towards the end of the book. In some respects, this, this, this older empire, really centuries-old way of imperial living, is still at work in the way uh, um, all kinds of people function within the state. Um, but there, there's also a, a, a new tendency to sort of tighten things up. You mentioned earlier... Um, uh, the, the phenomenal um, um, uh, uh, impact of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, it's a reminder of the great technological changes of the late imperial era that were sort of tightening up the empire as, um, as, a, as a series of connected spaces, allowing for a, a much more movement, a much faster movement, much, much more regular movement between the different em- uh, parts of the empire. Uh, and that, that sort of technological, uh, I would say, sort of tightening up or fastening of the empire was accompanied by policies that sought to give a, a, a greater standardization to the empire, to make sure that more people were, were formed into a kind of Russian way of looking at the world, that more people, given any kind of choice, uh, uh, would would become uh, Russian Orthodox, <laughs> uh, uh, and um, to make sure that the administration of the state was more streamlined, so that everybody was in effect uh, um, uh, going to court the same way, posting a letter in the same fashion, and that meant, in a very basic sense, undoing many of the regional particularities of the state. So Ungern found himself in, in a sense, two empires at once. He was in. Um, this uh, much older empire of, of, a, of a certain amount of flexibility and creative adaptation to the, to the fundamental reality of, of multi-ethnicity and multi-confessionality, multi, uh, mul- mul- the multi quality empire. He lived within the, 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 all the practical compromises that were required to make that work. And at the same time, he also inhabited this, this, this other empire that was tightening things up, uh, trying to standardize things, trying to uh, Russianize them more. This, uh, uh, and in, in, in many respects, again, if we want to come back to a big generalization, which is, a, which is very useful sometimes, we could say that um, it was the combination of these empires that they're sort of, in some, some regards, actually slamming together that helped to create uh, the imperial crisis that ultimately undid the state. Um, so... You know, what did they get wrong? What did they get right? It's hard to say because it was such a complex scene. Uh, but I think these two basic uh, ways of imperial living were at work in Ungern's life. And, and it's, it's, it's very clear that we can see both in him because he's such a Russianized fellow. And at the same time, he's operating um, uh, with, uh, with a broad sense of, of, of cultural um, flexibility um, uh, oriented um, around a Russian center, around a vision of the Russian Empire defined by Tsarism. Let's go towards the end of Ungern's life and, and his role in trying to keep together the monarchy, which he very much intended to do. He was a very he was very loyal to the monarchy. Uh, so what is his role uh, towards the end of his life, towards the early 1920s? Um, I believe he dies in 1921. What is his role in shaping, in trying to convince uh, the uh, people, the Stepan people in Asia to to continue believing in and being loyal to the monarchy. Uh, and then we can move into his um, ultimate demise and how it is that his empire crumbled and he crumbled himself. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, I guess I'd say exhibit number one in, um, uh, in the case to prove uh, um, how successful the empire was in creating Ungern as an imperial servant has to be his really undying monarchism, his absolute devotion uh, to the ideal of uh, the rule of the Tsar, uh, not as an ethnic Russian overlord, 
but as the symbol of a unified space connecting Europe and Asia, connecting the religions of the West and of the East, connecting all the peoples in between. I mean, if the Russian Empire was going to survive, it definitely needed imperial servitors like Ungen, who believed in the fundamental um, necessity of the czarist order. And that was really, I think, his abiding faith by the end of his life. Um, uh, I, I believe, again, without having too much to go on in terms of his own writings on this score, that this was a formation laid very early within his deepest upbringing and then cemented in the formal schooling that he received in some of the most elite uh, uh, um, educational establishments of the empire. And then, of course, repeated during his years of military service because uh, um, the Russian officer class was created uh, to serve the regime. And um, um, it's, in fact, um, um, one of the very important, uh, I guess, stumblings of the old order um, that by uh, the time of World War I, as the war accelerated in its destructiveness, the Russian officer corps uh, uh, changed profoundly. It had already been changing um, uh, uh, considerably prior to the war, but during the war it changed profoundly because of the enormous scale of death and destruction. And ultimately you end up with an officer class that is much, much more divided in its sympathies towards the Tsar. Uh, and it's this division that, that, that helps to explain some of the unraveling of, of the Tsarist order. Uh, what had been um, uh, for centuries established as the absolute loyal class became a class riven with questions about loyalty. Now, they didn't affect Ungen. Ungen remained loyal to the end. But some of his protestations, I think, were fired by the fact that he was, certainly by the end of his life, uh, confronted with the fact there were an awful lot of people, even people like him, <laughs> who no longer believed uh, quite the way he did, who had uh, abiding questions about the Tsarist order. Um, uh, uh, why did he embrace the ideal of Tsarism as a uh, message to take to Eastern peoples? Now, that's a really uh, valuable question because it opens up a broader view of the politics of Russian imperial history, uh, uh, not just in, in, um, in uh, East Asia, but, but um, uh, throughout the empire. I think um, he turned to the czarist ideal for the very practical reason that for centuries that ideal had worked. <laughs> there was a, a, a broad understanding within this old-fashioned empire that I was describing a little bit earlier, that for all of this to hold together, for the tremendous diversity to work itself out, for the uh, uh, obviously uh, completely disproportionate uh, distribution of wealth and power, uh, uh, for the tremendous unevenness between the regions in terms of their economies and the and really their 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 position vis-a-vis -vis the center and the outside world, for all of this diversity and complexity to hold together, you needed one fixed point, <laughs> and that fixed point. Uh, was the Tsar. It wasn't the Tsar as a, as a, as a Russian or, 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 or even a Russian Orthodox figure, though obviously <laughs> uh, uh, in the old Orthodox Empire there was no question that the Tsar would be Orthodox. But what was abidingly important in Ungern's embrace of the Tsarist ideal for Eastern peoples was the sense of the emperorness of the emperor, that he represented the center of this vast state that could be a kind of sheltering sky for everybody within it. Uh, and and, that, and that, that language of imperial power worked uh, to a degree uh, with Russians as well, even though we know that Russian society was riven by, by the time of the revolution with all kinds of questions of the viability of czarist rule. Um, it's less clear that people uh, felt that uh, there was no place for central rule at all. In fact, if we want to look uh, just a little bit ahead, we see how ultimately the revolution plays into the hands of, um, of uh, radical socialists, the Bolsheviks, who become ferocious centralizers, uh, uh, even though they too make their own accommodations with the diversity of the empire, recreating that empire in a new form. They're remarkable centralizers, and they speak to the abiding virtues of having a center, a center that will sort of hold it all together. So I think uh, uh, it's it's this um, it's this persuasion that for the complexity of this world to remain 
intact and functional. You need a center point. And for Ungern, there was no other center but the Tsar. That's, that's really interesting that you bring this uh, this question of a central government and a central Tsar, because it, it, it keeps reappearing in the context of Russia and its empireness. Uh, of course, the central uh, power in in the 40s was held in Moscow. And more recently, 100 years after what you've written in the book, um, just recently, I don't know if you've seen this yourself, Zhirinovsky, this, uh, this joker, from by most accounts in the Russian government, has spoken out about how Russia, in order to be powerful again, needs, even if it comes in a dictatorist way, a central empire, a, a strong emperor, uh, even if this emperor is Putin. So I wonder if you could talk about... Um, a cost, the cost of an empire, and how an empire spreads, and essentially the, uh, as we talked about earlier, the, the fragility of borders and borderlands, um, and whether or not what we're seeing today happen in Russia is the beginning, or maybe the intentions of a new empire, of, of a continuation of an old empire, and what your thoughts are from learning from studying old empires about what is happening today. Well, you know, I think an interesting place to start this, uh, r- uh, you know, sort of ruminating on on the meaning of empire in the in the Russian context in our time uh, is is really the end of Ungern's story because he he ultimately comes to define a vision of of uh, of, a, of a future um, a world of empires um, um, uh, sitting in his um, um, sort of frontier uh, uh, outpost in outer Mongolia, and for for folks who haven't yet. Uh, for readers who haven't yet had a chance to look at the book and don't know necessarily how Ungern's story ends up, uh, uh, it's really the end of his life that's um, uh, uh, known at all. Um, I mean, there are a, n- a number of studies written about Ungern, um, um, in part because uh, the, the last few months of his life are so dramatic. You know, he ends up in the in, in fighting on the side of the whites in the in the Russian Civil War in East in uh, eastern Siberia. When the whites front against the reds uh, breaks down, he's in the Transbaikal and he's in charge of, you know, a, th- a thousand or so men, most of them cavalry. And uh, even though most of the other whites in the region are moving farther east, ultimately to the Russian Far East or into Russian Manchuria, like the great city of Harbin that becomes one of the centers of the Russian white immigration, Ungern goes into outer Mongolia. <laughs> and in uh, outer Mongolia, he sets himself up as, in effect, um, a, um, a resurrector of empires. And he begins uh, with envisioning the resurrection of the Qing Empire <laughs> uh, um, uh, through, interestingly enough, uh, uh, the uh, re- uh, re-enthronement of the ruler of Mongolia, the Bogda of Mongolia, uh, whom Ungern envisioned as a, uh, a kind of imperial servitor. Um, Mongolia had been ruled for centuries from Beijing uh, 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 as, as, in effect, a, a, a region of the Qing Empire. And Ungern in, uh, um, uh, envisioned re- recreating this relationship that had been undone by the tremendous chaos of the Chinese Revolution that was occurring in roughly the same historical moment as the Russian one. But as Ungern began, uh, uh, in the first instance, placing the Bogda back on the throne, communicating with potential supporters uh, uh, and, uh, uh, I guess I'd say, influential uh, 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 leaders in in the broader Mongolian and Manchurian regions, he also began envisioning how this repairing of the imperial system in East Asia uh, would connect to a resurrection of empire in Russia. And it's this uh, uh, sort of fixation on on his role in sort of returning empire to Russia uh, that ultimately le- leads to his demise because he takes his troops uh, from Mongolia in the, in the spring, summer of 1921 um, onto uh, a, a, a war footing in what turns into a pretty uh, miscalculated campaign against the Reds in eastern Siberia. He's ultimately captured and then hauled back to western Siberia where he's put on trial by the Bolsheviks in one of the early show trials. And shortly thereafter, he's executed. In uh, dispatching Ungern, the Bolsheviks are very clearly, in their mind, dispatching the old regime. They're dispatching everything that was wrong about old Russia, represented by this, um, um, uh, you know, brutal um, imperial warlord. 
But the case, I'm, uh, the point I make in the book is that there's a kind of irony in Ungern's ending because even though he's an imperialist uh, of an old order who clearly has to be condemned by the new, and this new order is sort of fundamentally anti-imperialist. It sort of defines itself as being against empires. Empires are exploitative, capitalistic. Uh, they're doomed to the ash heap of history. The very uh, people who are um, condemning empire are themselves living within its traditions and ultimately um, um, going to find themselves facing the same questions of how to make um, imperial space cohere. And ultimately, to make a very complicated story short, the Bolsheviks who, who uh, pillory and then um, execute Ungern ultimately come to create an imperial state of their own by a very different name, organized in very different ways than the preceding empire, but also with dramatic continuities with that old order. If we speed up from that time, the end of the old Russian empire, to the very earliest uh, formation of the new Soviet state, a kind of successor to the Russian Empire. If we move from those very tumultuous times to our own, some 20 or so years after the Soviet Union has collapsed, I think to understand the, the, the sort of place of empire in contemporary Russian politics um, requires thinking through the way empire has been reckoned in the 20th century, and especially since the ending of the Soviet state. During the Soviet period, uh, there was almost nothing good that you could say about the Russian Empire uh, uh, as, um, as, a, uh, as a political form. I mean, there was some glory to Russian arms. There was some wisdom to Russian rulers. Uh, there was a natural way in which the different peoples in the empire should live together, because ultimately uh, they were still living together, many of them, in the Soviet state. But empire itself was a bad word because empire presumed relations of subordination, hierarchy, and exploitation. The Soviet Union was a multinational state. It was expressly not an empire. Um, and it was held up as the right way to do multinational business, to run, in effect, a diverse uh, um, uh, combination of peoples and regions. When the Soviet Union collapses in many respects due to its own internal contradictions, one of which was the contradiction of nationality and central power, uh, there really, how would I put it, a kind of vacuum develops in the way uh, the broader Russian public and the, the power establishment thinks about um, uh, the, 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 the course of the Russian future. You know, what, what legacy are we really going to draw on? The Soviet legacy didn't seem to work. The Russian imperial legacy had been a largely um, uh, delegitimized <laughs> through the course of the Soviet period. If you look at the 90s, you find this curious uh, um, uh, seesawing, zigzagging, looking for how to make sense of this past, none of which seemed entirely usable. Until, really, I believe, the ascent of Putin uh, to the Russian presidency, when some things become a little bit clearer. Uh, a kind of marriage of convenience is made with regards to the strikingly different structures of the Russian past. On the one hand, it becomes now entirely permissible, not just because Putin said so, but because more and more people are feeling this way in the Russian public and in the Russian political establishment, to embrace the glory and the achievement of the Russian empire, to embrace the, the, uh, the legacy of empire that I think in its most obvious form, becomes a kind of imperial nostalgia for an awful lot of, of, of educated Russians, both inside and outside of government. To marry that vision of a sort of mostly good Russian empire, speaking to the glory and the uh, sort of creativity of, 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 of Russian elites, um, to marry that to also a kind of veneration for the, for the Soviet achievement, <laughs> uh, which was, a, as I was saying before, a very different way of organizing multi, multinational life. Uh, and, and to see in the Soviet achievement a kind of fulfillment of the best aspects of Russia's imperial history um, and also the resolution of some of its darker chapters, its darker aspects. What you don't have in any of this, though, is uh, a, a real airing of the complexities of empire. There's a kind of imperial 
mystique that's embraced about the distant Russian past. And uh, on the part of the power establishment, um, very clearly, a, uh, a kind of res- uh, a, 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 a resonating towards uh, the, the, um, the achievement of, of Russian power over such an enormous territory and over so many different peoples. But there's not much questioning of, actually, of how this works, the nitty-gritty of it all. Uh, the, uh, on the one hand, there's not much engagement with the um, abuses of empire. With the, with the tremendous costs in blood and treasure of running such a gigantic state, uh, 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 facing all the challenges that Russia faced in its history of um, uh, you know, a difficult climate, uh, uh, a poor infrastructure, uh, a, a relatively small population for such an enormous territory. There's not much uh, reckoning with the complexities and the, and the violence, uh, uh, the... the, the um, the costly shortcuts that are that are uh, embraced to make this thing work. By the same token, there's also, I would say, and this is also a, a, a real loss for the broader Russian public or for, for all of us. Really, there isn't there isn't much reckoning with the with the with the broader, uh, I would say, ordinary achievements of this empire. The the ones that we see a little bit in Ungern's life, the mixing of different peoples, um, uh, the way in which the empire didn't just exist as a series of policies and uh, you know, uh, uh, glorious imperial rituals in the capital, but it existed actually in ways of cohabitation um, that were created over, uh, in some cases, centuries of interaction between different groups under a common roof, the common roof provided by Russian Tsarism. You know, that complexity, and there was tremendous complexity there, is itself a, an achievement of empire. It should be, I think, part of the reckoning of the story of empire um, that could, in some respects, be turned in a, in a fairly positive direction. You know, but it too, I, I would argue, is not really part of the way that empire is considered uh, in, in 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 Russia today. So we end up with a curiously disembodied understanding of empire. I would say, you know, empire is just this big space on the map, full of all these different kinds of people, with Russians in the middle and brilliant Russians on top. Um, uh, uh, but the stuff of the empire. Uh, oh, uh, what made it work, what made it fail, ultimately. That's not really examined. And there isn't much room in Russian public discourse for that kind of uh, inquiry as well. So when we uh, zip forward and find ourselves in the incredible um, intensity of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, um, starting with the, 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 the you know, simmering and then explosive protests in Kiev, moving then to the, the, uh, the Russian assertion of its power over Crimea, and as far as the Russians are concerned, its reunification with Russia, and as far as the Ukrainians and many of us in the West are concerned, its annexation by a foreign state, all the way to today when we see, in effect, uh, the, the, the most messy and bloody of, sort of proxy wars being fought in eastern Ukraine, um, uh, you don't find any real... Uh, engagement with the the history, the very, very complicated history that's created this region. There's a sort of facile reference to that history, but there isn't uh, a readiness to uh, engage, uh, in my view, uh, the fullness of, of, of how these regions and the peoples of these regions uh, held together uh, uh, for centuries. Um, uh, uh, there and consequently, it's a, it's a fairly sterile discussion. The empire that's used in Russian parliaments today really doesn't look like uh, the empire that I study. I, it's nowhere near as um, uh, awesome in its power uh, or as limited in its reach. And it's certainly nowhere near as complex in the cohabitation of, of peoples. And I think that is a loss because if that were in the uh, the public debate, I think there'd be more um, there'd be more terms for us to use in thinking about a solution uh, to where borders should be, where citizenship should lie, and what peoples can live in the state and which peoples cannot. So, but before we before we do wrap up, I would like to ask you what you're uh, working on currently as your next project, perhaps after Baron's Cloak. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. Well, I've, like, I've long been interested in, 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 um, in Russia's history as an empire and 
fascinated by the way in which so many different um, you know, peoples come together in this space. Uh, with my new book, I'm, I'm turning to a study of uh, early 18th century Russia, and I'm going to uh, uh, use the, um, the remarkable period of the rule of Peter the Great to try and explore questions of um, Russia's engagement with the world. Um, because from so much uh, study over the years of uh, Russia's modern history, um, I, I've, I've been drawn to the, the period of the late 17th and early 18th century as a, as a time uh, of, of revolution, of a sort of reordering of Russian life in some um, ultimately very profound ways that was also... Um, uh, you know, coupled to uh, the country's uh, new engagement with the world around it, with other uh, societies, other states. And uh, my, the goal of my new project, which I'm tentatively calling uh, Peter's Horizons, is a, a study of the way in which uh, different imperial Russians, not just ethnic Russians, and, and, and uh, um, different kinds of subjects, including foreign subjects of the Russian Empire in the time, um, so it created this new way of placing the empire in the world that I, I believe uh, ultimately had you know, very, very powerful um, uh, consequences for the evolution of the country over the next 200 years. So that's what, I, what I'm working on now. Uh, uh, in some respects, I'm sort of staying within um, the range of, of issues that have long fascinated me, but I'm uh, sort of approaching them in a, in a new way, in a new, in a new period. Thanks so much for joining us on New Books Network. Well, thanks a lot. It was really enjoyable uh, to talk to you a little bit about about my uh, my book and about all the interesting issues that are a part of Russia's imperial history. So, thanks. This has been a production of the New Books Network. Please join us again soon.